0: America's Godly Heritage. Today we are going to be looking at the first Great Awakening. So next on our list we have John Marent. Now, unlike the other ministers previously mentioned, John Marent began his ministry as a result of being converted to Christ after an encounter with George Whitfield. Merrant was a free black living in Charleston, South Carolina, and he was a bit of a music prodigy. By the age of 13, he had mastered the violin and the French horn, and he and a friend of his would often be hired by people to go and play at their official functions or their parties or wherever you want some nice classical music in the background. One evening, Merritt and his friend were walking through the town to go to one of their functions when they came across George Whitfield preaching in the street. The friend whispers to Merritt, Why don't you blow your French horn and really scare everybody? It'll be great. So Merritt was just about to blow when Whitfield looked straight at him, pointed his finger and said, Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel, which is from Amos 4.12. Right then and there, Merritt just went down like boom, like someone had smacked him over the head with a hammer and just passed out on the street. They couldn't wake him up. So they dragged him home, and he was really, really sick in bed for four days until Whitfield came and prayed for him. Then he got healed very quickly and also came to Christ. He became passionate about his newfound faith. Well, this did not go down well with his family. They did not like this, particularly because that meant a lot of the cha-ching money was no longer coming in because he would rather evangelize people than go play at the functions now. So eventually it got so bad, they kicked him out of the house. And Merritt fled into the woods, where he happened to bump into a Cherokee warrior. The two became fast friends, and the warrior taught Merritt all about how to live as a Cherokee, how to live off the land. He taught him the Cherokee language. And then after 10 weeks or so, they went to the Cherokee camp. Now, Piano wondered how good of a friend this guy is, because Cherokee law said if you were an outsider and you set foot inside their camp, they would kill you. So I guess the Cherokee warrior kind of thought, well, I can get away with it because he's my friend. But it didn't work that way. They instantly arrested Merritt and they were going to kill him. They had these wooden skewers that they were going to stick into him and then set him on fire and roast him. But as they grabbed him to begin the execution process, Merritt fell to his knees and started praying to God in the Cherokee language. His prayers were just so amazing that they changed the hearts of the executioner, the judge, and the chief. The chief had him set free and told him he could go and evangelize anywhere he wanted, which he did for the next two months. At the end of that time, the chief sent him out, so that he could go and minister to some of the other tribes in the area. So he went to the Creeks and the catawars and the Housas, and he was accompanied by 50 of the Cherokee warriors. They were his bodyguard. So you can imagine when Merritt and his bodyguard showed up in these other tribes, people listened. <laughs> he had a great impact on these tribes for Christ. The amazing thing is, he was 14 at the time. He did all of this incredible stuff, and he was only 14. God continued to work through him for many years after that. So we have all of these examples of the way God is working through these ministers to have great impact in their locales, whether they were ordained clergymen or bricklayers or teenagers. The key was them being willing for god to use them they were willing to be his vessels no matter the cost no matter the difficulty no matter the opposition as whitfield traveled across the colonies over and over again for 31 years 31 years he preached alongside and encouraged and influenced each of these godly ministers and many more whitfield became the uniting force that grew these scattered local awakenings into the one great awakening. And it wasn't just ministers who befriended Whitfield. He also became friends with some of the rich and powerful, including our good friend Benjamin Franklin. Franklin was astonished by the extraordinary influence of Whitfield's oratory on his hearers. He did appreciate the influence, the positive impact the revival had upon Philadelphia. In his autobiography, he wrote, It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious, so one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. In addition, Franklin was amazed by the carrying power of Whitfield's voice. So he decided to conduct a little scientific experiment on him. If you know anything about Franklin, you know he liked conducting scientific experiments. So one evening when Whitfield was talking, Franklin backed down the street until he could no longer hear Whitfield. Then he did some math to figure out an area in the open space, and then how many people could fit into that area, and he figured out that when Whitfield was outside preaching, his voice was so powerful, he could be heard by 30,000 people, and that is in a time with no microphones and no speakers, just his own voice. That's pretty powerful, yet Whitfield also did encounter opposition. People did not like what was going on, There were occasions when some of the opposition was slightly deserved because Whitfield got it wrong. He was just human, particularly in his younger years. He sometimes said something wrong or he's not quite right. There's one example from October 1740. A group of Presbyterians called themselves the Queerists, and that's as in query, like to make an inquiry, to ask questions. They scrutinized his early sermons from England, and they had pamphlets printed up of their criticisms of his several erroneous expressions. Now, I would be pretty ticked off if somebody went back through something that I had written back when I was young and found fault with it and then printed it up without my knowledge or permission and spread it all over the place just to try to discredit me. That's just not a nice thing to do. But Whitfield's response to this was pretty amazing. Although his opponents were trying to hold things against him, instead of really being angry with them, Whitfield thanked them for the opportunity they had furnished of publicly correcting some errors in his printed sermons, confessed nearly all they had charged upon him, mentioned others that they had not noticed. He assured them that he did not find the least resentment stirring in his soul against them. In the morning of this day, he preached at Mr. Pemberton's meeting house. He never saw the word of God fall with such weight in New York before. You can see God responding to his humble response and his trying very hard to not be angry response by again using him as his vessel to bring the Holy Spirit down while he's preaching. And this is in New York City. Other things that they would attack him for were that they thought his preaching style was too flamboyant and that he was an enthusiast. By that, they don't mean, ooh, I'm enthusiastic about something, let me tell you all about it. It's a derogatory term for someone who's injuring the dignity of preaching and illegitimately claiming revelation from God when they really hadn't had any. So it's it's basically saying you're a fraud. You're hurting our dignity because you're a fraud. They also didn't like his emphasis on personal conversion. Again, the mind boggles. How can you be a minister if you don't want your parishioners to have a personal relationship with Christ and to develop it and grow it and grow in godly character? It just boggles the mind. They further objected to the emotional outbursts of new converts. Sometimes when people became Christians, they'd get excited about it. They'd cry, they'd laugh, they'd shout. Sometimes people would faint. It's just emotional responses to this great transition going on in their lives. The people who were criticizing this saw this as a lack of dignity and decorum. And how could good upstanding citizens behave that way? Oh, how could you do that? Others refused to acknowledge the Great Awakening as a work of God. Instead, they were saying it was something Satan was doing to trick people, or it was just people whipping themselves up into a frenzy. So it was a work of Satan or a work of man, not a work of God. The Bible says not acknowledging the work of the Holy Spirit and instead saying it's a work of Satan. That is a pretty serious sin. Jonathan Edwards, we're back to our friend Jonathan Edwards. He really did not like these criticisms and he wrote much in defense of the Great Awakening. He used his superior brain power to write a lot of things to support the Great Awakening and to show biblically how it was a good thing and how it was part of God and God's plan. Whitfield also had no problem pushing back on these attacks. He knew they were going to happen. He knew he'd have opposition, and it was just part of everything else for him. So he would push back. One example of this was when he was in Boston. This was in 1740 as well. He described the city as a whole as having the form of religion but little power. So they're pretending to be Christians, they're going and doing their religious duties on Sunday and taking off their boxes and doing what they're supposed to do, but it's not really real in their lives. So Here he's taking on a similar tack to what Gilbert Tennant was saying. Whitfield wrote, I am persuaded that the generality of preachers talk of an unknown and unfelt Christ. The reason why congregations have been so dead is because they had dead men preaching to them. Ooh, that aroused a storm of antipathy. He was denounced from one pulpit to another. Boy, they were ticked off. However people kept flocking to hear him wherever he would go to speak they would fill the place not long after that 20 boston ministers came forward and openly acknowledged that they came to a personal relationship with christ through whitfield's teachings and preachings ooh so in addition to this kind of antagonism that whitfield's having to deal with he also is in physical danger some of the time He has had brutal mobs attacking him and chasing him and attacking the people listening to him. He's had followers beaten and maimed and women humiliated by having people strip their clothes off. Whitfield himself received three death threat letters, and once he was stoned until he nearly died. Despite such strong opposition, Whitfield continued to preach every chance he had. The Williamsburg, Virginia Gazette reported that in early December the Reverend Mr. Whitfield preached there, and there is Chester, to about 7,000. On Friday he preached at Willingstown to about 5,000. On Saturday at Newcastle and the same evening at Christian Bridge. On Sunday at White Clay Creek he preached twice, resting about a half an hour between the sermons to about 8,000 people of whom about three thousand, it's computed, came on horseback. And though it rained most of the time, yet they patiently stood in the open air. He then proceeded on his journey, preaching to multitudes wherever he went. And so it went, year after year, up and down the east coast, as far inland as he could get by horseback or canoe. He loved preaching and teaching and traveling. In the summer of 1754, he had a particularly busy summer. It's believed he traveled over 2,000 miles in five months, often preaching several times a day. He drove himself mercilessly. No matter how sick he was, as long as he had the strength to stand and speak, he would preach. He would trust God to meet his need and sustain him through the sermon and for God to provide his power and anointing over the situation. And God answered. The power of the Holy Spirit fell nearly every time Whitfield preached, and hundreds of thousands of people were saved. Whitfield gave his last sermon on the 29th of September, 1770, and he died the next morning. Thank you for listening to this edition of America's Godly Heritage. I hope you have a great day. Bye! Help us spread our message. If you would like to learn more about America's godly heritage or to support us with prayers or finances, you can find us on YouTube, Vimeo, Patreon, Give, Send, Go, most podcast sites such as Buzzsprout and Spotify, and on social media X, Truth, Instagram, and Facebook. You can view the resources used to make this podcast on YouTube, Vimeo, and Patreon. We really appreciate your support. Thanks again. Bye.